Welcome to the Mark Driscoll Ministries podcast. To find more Bible teaching from Pastor Mark, visit markdriscoll.org. Thank you for listening and being a part of Mark Driscoll Ministries. And remember, it's all about Jesus. All right, if you've got a Bible, go to John chapter 14. We're taking the better part of a year and we're going verse by verse through a whole book of the Bible called John. It's all about Jesus and it's written by his nearest and dearest best friend who was an eyewitness. So when Jesus said something, he heard it. When Jesus did something, he saw it. And the storyline of John begins all the way in eternity past because Jesus is our eternal God. And the first half of the book covers everything from eternity past through his birth, his upbringing up until about the early 30s where he starts his public ministry. And then the last half of John's gospel where we find ourselves today, everything slows down. If this was a film, the camera would pan in and it would pay careful, close attention because we're in the final days of Jesus' life before he goes to the cross and dies in our place for our sins. And it just goes to show that every day of your life is important, but some days are exceedingly important. The experiences you have, the decisions you make, those are pivot points for the next season of your life for good or for bad. And this is where Jesus finds himself. And it's a good reminder for us when we're in those exceedingly important seasons to slow down, to pull back, to pay attention and to take our time to make sure and to ensure that we're walking in God's will. And that's exactly what the storyline of John does. And what we hear Jesus talking about with the final breaths that he has before he dies, he sets eternity on the horizon. He's gonna talk a lot about heaven and eternity. And he's also gonna talk this week a lot about God the Father and next week about God the Holy Spirit. And so it just shows us these are Jesus' priorities. When you are on your deathbed, when you are nearing your end, what you are focused on and who you are talking about are the things and the people that matter most to you. And so Jesus sets on the horizon for us eternity and he wants us to focus on the relationship with the Father and the relationship with the Spirit that he provides and affords us. So that being said, if you've got your Bible, go to John chapter 14. And the first thing he starts telling us this week is about our Father and our family. Jesus starts John 14, one, let not your hearts be troubled. Let me just pause there. How many of you, you're burdened today, you're troubled, you're fearful, you're frustrated, you're anxious, you're worried, you're stressed. How many of you, you had a hard time sleeping last night or this morning you got some bad news or you're a little scared of what you're gonna find at work or school tomorrow. There's anxiety, there is concern, there is frustration, there is pain, there is burden, there is burden. Um, Sometimes as Christians, we can almost get the impression for those of us who are Christians that, that to be burdened, to be troubled, to be emotional is a bad thing. We just lack faith and don't trust God. Well, previous to this in John chapter 13, I believe it was in verse 21, correct? Uh, the Lord Jesus, just a few verses prior, he said, uh, my soul or my spirit is troubled. So Jesus was troubled. Jesus never sinned, but he was troubled. He was burdened. He was anxious, he was a bit fearful perhaps. Therefore, to be in an emotionally complex and difficult burden season cannot be a sin. He's gonna tell us in just a few chapters in John 16, I think it's around verse 33, in the world you will have trouble. I don't know if you've paid attention to the world. Jesus hit the bullseye, it's all trouble, amen? It's all trouble. And what Jesus says is, I have trouble and in the world you are gonna have trouble. And right here in the middle, chapter 14, he says, when trouble comes upon you, don't let it remain or abide in you. Let me say it another way. Trouble 
burden will come on you, but you can't let it in you. You can't let it in you. When you let it in you, it starts to destroy you. It starts to affect you in a negative and unhealthy way. Jesus in chapter 13, he was troubled and he was burdened. You're gonna see as we go a little further in John's gospel, he takes that burden to God the Father in a place called the Garden of Gethsemane. And there in prayer, in a very emotional moment, he transfers that burden that he is carrying to the Father, to the Father. And so for you and I, we need to acknowledge and accept that there are times and seasons where just like the Lord Jesus says, our hearts at the center of who we are, at the core of our emotional being, we're gonna be troubled, burdened, bothered, frustrated, scared. And when those moments come, we can either wear it and allow it into us, or we can transfer it and hand it to the Lord. One of my pastors, a, a godly older man, it was a couple of years ago, I was in an anxious, sort of worried, fearful uh, season. Uh, emotionally, I wasn't doing great, to be honest with you. And I was troubled. And he said, how's your prayer life? I said, it's going good. I'm talking to the Lord all the time. He said, well, how are you feeling? I said, I'm feeling freaked out. My spiritual gift is freaking out. That's my specialty. And he said, uh, then you're, he said, if you're talking to God about your problems, but you're still carrying the burden, you're not praying, you're just complaining to the Lord. I was like, well, thank you, Barnabas, for that deep word of encouragement. Um, he said, no, prayer mark is where you don't just tell the Lord your burden, you transfer to the Lord your burden. This is not something that you have to do. This is something that God invites you to do and you get to do. God, I'm troubled. Okay, you should be. That's hard and that's a burden. Transfer that to me. My yoke is easy. My burden is light. The Lord says, he'll help you carry it. If you've got any burden today, we want you to not let your heart remain troubled, though it might be troubled by transferring that burden to the Lord. And transferring the burden to the Lord is not being irresponsible. It's saying, Lord, I will do everything I can do, but I'm gonna trust you to do what only you can do. And there are certain things that are out of my hands, but they're in your hand. And faith is trusting in his will for your life. Believe in God, believe also in me. Some people will say, well, I believe in God. I just don't believe in Jesus. Jesus says we're a package deal. We're a group on, we're a buy one, get one free. We come together, right? Believe in God the Father, believe in me also. In my Father's house, we're gonna talk a lot today about God the Father, because Jesus is gonna talk a lot about God the Father. Next week, he's gonna talk a lot about the Holy Spirit. In my Father's house are many rooms. What's the favorite house you've ever lived in? Do you have a favorite? You're like, that was my favorite house. Is that my favorite house? How many of you, you are the person like me, you like to plan your trips. How many of you always have to have, I, this is me, I'll just, this is not a confession, this is just an acknowledgement. I like planning trips. If this whole preaching thing doesn't work out, I think maybe, uh, maybe travel agent cruise director is my backup plan. I, I like to have fun on the calendar and I like to get it organized and I like to tell everybody what we're doing and I like to build the enthusiasm and get excited about where we're going. And one of the most important things, and we do a lot of great trips as a family is, where we're gonna stay, What's it gonna, what are we gonna eat, what's it gonna be like, what's the culture, what's the climate, all of that. And Jesus here is talking about many rooms in the Father's house. If it were not so, I would have told you that I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself, uh, that where I am, you may also be, and you know the way to where I am going. Jesus here is ultimately talking about the kingdom of God, heaven, heaven. 
And uh, every destination, it's amazing to me that we live in Phoenix. I love being here. But as you travel around the country, sometimes you'll see billboards and advertisements for Phoenix. We were watching, uh, was it The Price is Right recently? And the grand prize was to come to Scottsdale, Arizona and go to Talking Stick and to go to Top Golf. And I was like, oh, you're coming to my neighborhood. That's amazing. Swing by the Trinity Church if you really want to be blessed. But nonetheless, I wish they would have put it on there. You can go to Top Golf, Talking Stick Resort, and the Trinity Church. Pastor Mark will yell at you for an hour. All expenses paid. So um, I just thought, isn't that amazing that people all around the world, they do research and they decide to come to where we are. Well, what Jesus says is, as we like to plan our vacations and trips, that ultimately God has a vacation destination planned for us all called heaven. It's the eternal all-inclusive resort where the Lord Jesus picks up the tab for everybody. And how many of you, let's just do this. I got nothing else to do. We'll just have a little conversation. Um, When you think of heaven, what are some of the bad cultural sort of false perceptions of heaven that are commonly promulgated? What are they? Angel wings, harp, cloud, diaper. Like, really, is that not hell? I mean, I thought this is heaven. I see to me as a grown man, pretty much every day, my goal is not to wear a diaper, pretty much every day, okay? <laughs> my next goal is not to play a harp, right? <laughs> and and, and if, I, if I was stuck on a cloud, like a little cloud, not, a, not, not even an awesome cloud, like a little cloud, and I came back as a, as a fat baby, um, <laughs> And I had, if all I had was a harp, I'd be like, really, this is all I'm doing forever? Well, thankfully I have wings. Oh wait, I'm too fat, they're too small. We can't really go anywhere. These wings are too small. I would have to diet and then fly away and drop the harp. I mean, the whole thing's just a, whoever was in charge of the marketing for heaven, you're not very good at it, okay? You're not very good at it. Meanwhile, the marketing for hell is really good. They're like, we got a band, open bar, you know, it's at night, you could sleep in, nobody judges you and our cars are fast. You're like, well, that's amazing. I, I, let me tell you, this is Jesus explaining to us of heaven because Jesus comes down from heaven. That's what he tells us elsewhere. I've come down from heaven. So he's the only one that actually knows what heaven is like. This is why when you go for a trip or you book a tour, you go online and you read the, reviews of the people who have been there. You're like, okay, they've been there, so they know what they're talking about. Jesus is the only one who's come down from heaven. He knows exactly what he's talking about. And he tells us that the kingdom of God, the father's house, it is like a family. And I love this language. So he says that God is a father. Heaven is the father's house. It's an awesome house with many rooms. What that means is that fellow Christians are brothers and sisters. The Bible uses that language, that women are like brothers and that, uh, um, no, no. I mean, we're in America, we gotta hit the brakes and clean this up. Cause people are, people are like, I'm fine with that. I'm, no, 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 no. Boys are boys and girls are girls and I don't care what they say, that's how it is, okay? so. Oh gosh, really? Lord help, amen. Okay, here we go. So that men are like fathers and women and brothers, and I freak myself out. I mean, thankfully it's on the internet, so what could possibly go wrong at this point? So that men are like brothers and women are like sisters. Did I get it right? 
Yeah, 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 I went to public school. I always get it right the second time. Okay, so, and, and what's interesting is the Bible uses that language. And I don't know if you know this, but in that day, that was illegal because you weren't allowed to call anyone brother or sister unless they were a biological relative because that meant that they had a right to your inheritance. But what happens is when you meet God as father and Jesus is your big brother and you enter into the church family and we are a church family, that ultimately you meet guys and you're like, man, that feels like my long lost brother. How many of you have met a believer like that? And you meet a gal and you're like, she's like my long lost sister. And all of a sudden you start feeling sometimes closer to people who don't share your biological birth, but they share your spiritual birth, the family of God. And so what he's saying is that the God is a father, heaven is the father's house that will be there with our brothers and sisters. It's like a big family reunion. And I think how awesome it's gonna be when I get to see all of God's children and we get to have this great, glorious, eternal reunion. People who know and love Jesus that die, they just sort of go ahead and they're part of the welcoming committee when we get there. And what Jesus is saying is that I've come to invite you to the party that never ends at the Father's house, which is a far more encouraging, exciting, and enjoyable view of heaven. I want you to have this view of heaven. And the good news is then too, when somebody loves the Lord and they die, they're just going to the party and we're ultimately going to be there with them forever rejoicing. That's the picture that the Lord Jesus gives. And what he says is he's saying, I've come down from heaven, I'm here, to save you, to love you, to forgive you. I'm gonna to go to the cross and die for your sins. Then I'm gonna rise and conquer sin and death. And then I'm gonna to go to the party and I'm gonna get ready to welcome you. How many of you, you're, you're hospitality folks, you're event planners, you're, you got stuff on the grill, you're the tailgate party folks. Ultimately, deep down, all of you want Jesus. You wanna to go to an awesome party with wonderful people and celebrate something bigger than yourself. And, and that is the whole point of the kingdom of God. Well, then this question gets asked, um, how do we get there? That's the question that gets asked in the next section of verses. Thomas said to him, uh, Lord, we do not know where we are going. So here's a miracle. A man is asking for directions. His name is Thomas, okay? And Jesus is like, you go to heaven. Thomas is like, I, I pulled out my phone, I, heaven, and it didn't, it, it didn't know where to take me. How do we get to heaven? So he's asking Jesus for directions. How can we know the way? Isn't this a great question? Okay, we're gonna die. How do we know what happens next? Jesus said, I am the singular exclusive way, the singular exclusive truth, the singular exclusive life. I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. Thomas Akempis, he was an old Christian teacher. He says, without the way, there is no going. Without the truth, there is no knowing. Without the life, there is no living. Um, the way, what Jesus is talking about here is that really life on this earth, it's a cul-de-sac. One generation drives around, doesn't figure it out, dies. The next generation drives around, dies. Nobody figures it out. Jesus says, there's a way out, there's a way forward. I'm that way. Now the truth, we live in a world that doesn't even believe in the truth. And I don't know about you, even when an event happens, I'm not sure what is fact or fiction. It's hard to know. So much conjecture, so much PR, so much spin. What really happened? Who really knows? Jesus says, I am the truth. I am the truth. I am the truth. It's personal and relational. 
and I am the life, meaning there is no life apart from Jesus. So when it comes to this issue of Jesus being the way, what Jesus is saying here is that there are incredibly important implications for what religion, God, spirituality, or ideology you choose. Some people, they are what we'll call religious pluralists. They say, there are many ways. No, there's not. Jesus says, he's the only way. Now, some of you will be frustrated because this makes Jesus exclusive, but I want you to see how inclusive Jesus is. There are many ways to Jesus, but Jesus is the only way to eternal life. You can come to Jesus through a sermon, reading the Bible, Christian book, God healing you, a vision, uh, a dream. There are many ways that people come to Jesus, but Jesus is the only way that people come to heaven. So God is exclusive, it's only Jesus, but he's inclusive. Everyone is welcome to Jesus, whatever your race, whatever your age, whatever your nationality, whatever your history, whatever your ideology, everyone is welcome to the singular and narrow way. Jesus is the way and he is the truth. And the truth is important because the truth is that which corresponds with reality. People say like, see, that's your truth and that's your truth and that's your truth. Let me just say, we don't feel this way about banking, amen? You don't go to the teller and say, how much do I have? He's like, well, how much do you think you have? What do you feel like you have? I feel like you have different. Your truth is your truth and my truth is my truth. It's like, no, my money is my money and my gun is my gun and I want my money, right? There, there is reality here. I would not like it if I went to the doctor and the doctor said, well, I don't know. Some say you're sick, some say you're healthy. Who are I to judge? You're the doctor, okay, tell me the truth. Am I, am I healthy? Then I'll keep doing that. Am I sick? What do I need to change? Am I dying? How long do I have? I need to get my affairs in order and tell the people that I love. If you don't know the truth, you're not dealing with reality. And if you don't deal with reality, you're not ready for eternity. And this is where some people say, we'll just pick whatever religion works for you. It doesn't work for God. And it doesn't work on the day of your death. So it doesn't work. I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. And what Jesus is saying is, there is no real purposeful, meaningful, eternal life apart from me. And these are big statements, to be sure. These are unprecedented, unparalleled claims in the history of the world. No major religious leader has anyone saying anything like this. Life with Jesus, he's gonna use an analogy coming up in the next chapter. He says, I am the vine, you are the branches. He's talking about life. You're not the source of life, Jesus is. He's the vine, you're the branch. You wanna be healthy, you gotta be connected to Jesus. You wanna live forever, you gotta be connected to Jesus. You wanna have the life of God and his energy and power flowing into and through you, you need to be connected to Jesus. He is the life, he is the only way to live life. And everyone who is here and has met the Lord Jesus would testify and agree with me that Jesus changes everything and life without Jesus is nothing, amen? He is the life. And it's not just eternal life that begins when you die. Eternal life begins the moment that you meet Jesus. Some of you who are young, you're thinking, when I get older, I'll think about Jesus and go into heaven. No, think about Jesus so heaven can come to you long before you go to heaven. That God can come to be with you long before you stand before God. Jesus says, I'm the way, I am the truth. I am the life, singular and exclusive. So religion doesn't save, morality doesn't save, spirituality doesn't save, death doesn't save, only Jesus saves. Now, some people will be frustrated by this and I don't understand why. I was uh, thinking about this in the kitchen talking with Grace this week. 
Imagine you are sick with a terminal illness, something that you brought on yourself because of your life choices. You're not a victim. You chose some unhealthy habits and now you have a terminal illness. And you go to your doctor and you say, okay, give me the truth. What's reality? Doctor says, you have made yourself sick. You are in a death cycle. Your days are numbered. You have killed yourself. You have no one to blame but yourself. Next question you would ask the doctor is, what would you ask? How long do I have? First question I would ask is, can we change this diagnosis? Is there any cure? Is there any cure? Imagine the doctor looked at you and said, there's only one. Okay, next question is, what is it? Well, it's, it's a cure that someone has created, they've made possible. Okay, what's the success rate? Doctor says, 100% success rate. Oh, now I'm feeling better. Okay, what are the side effects? Like, am I gonna get a horn? Like, what, what happens? <laughs> am I gonna get a tail? What happens? Right, because you read those things on TV, they're like, it'll cure your asthma, but you'll explode. And you're like, really? I, don't, I think I like asthma. Um, imagine the doctor said, there's no side effects. It works every time there's no side. Next question, how much does it cost? How much does it cost? Imagine if the doctor said, actually there's a generous benefactor that pays for this treatment for everyone, it's free. Imagine if you looked at the doctor and said, I'm disappointed there's only one option. <laughs> Very frustrating, I feel like that's unloving. Very unfair. I don't like green pills, I like red ones. I'm just gonna protest, I feel this is unjust. Here's the human condition. We're all sinners by nature and choice. We have given ourselves a terminal condition called sin that brings death for us all. We have no one to blame but ourselves. The Lord Jesus comes as the great physician and he gives us the remedy, his life for our death. He gives us the remedy for our condition. It is a hundred percent effective. It saves everyone who partakes of this remedy. There are no side effects and it's free. The Lord Jesus is the one who purchased this for us. And for me, I would just say, thank Jesus and accept the remedy. Jesus wants to heal you. He wants to forgive you. He wants to save you. He is the great physician who has come for you. He is the way, he is the truth, he is the life. You are the problem, he is the solution. He is the solution. And then the story continues, uh, finding the father. This is going to be where we camp for the rest of our time together. This is, how do I say this? Uh, this is one of the most important things I will ever teach. And that's not an overstatement. I've been teaching the Bible for more than 20 years. I've been anticipating this section of John's gospel and I have been praying for you for months because I love you and I wanna, I wanna have a father's heart and I wanna reveal the father's heart. Um, let me pray for you. Father God, I pray for these dear people that I have the... Uh, the great honor and opportunity of teaching the Bible to today. Uh, Holy Spirit, please open their hearts and minds and understanding. 
And uh, Father God, there are some people here that uh, Father's a bad word or a confusing word or, a, or maybe even a, a frightening word. But Lord Jesus, you taught us to pray our Father, to cry out to God as our Father, to cling to relationship with God as our Father. So Father, I ask that I would be able to love and serve and teach these dear people um, with your heart and with a Father's heart. And I pray for our church family, starting with the men, that as a result of what the Lord Jesus has to say, that, that people would be healed up, starting with the men, and that the men would be better sons of the living God and better husbands to their wives and better fathers to their children and better grandfathers to their grandchildren. Lord God, I'm convinced that most of the problems of the world are caused by men. And uh, the only way to bring hope, help, and healing is for the men to meet the Father in whose name we pray. Amen. Um, in the Old Testament, it refers to God as Father only about 15 times. And pretty much every time, it refers to God the Father in relationship with the entire nation of Israel. In the history of the world, my research, if it is indeed accurate, indicates that there is no major religious leader who refers to God as a loving, personal, affectionate, relational father until the arrival of the Lord Jesus on planet earth. And then the Lord Jesus starts talking a lot about God the Father. In fact, um, if my memory is correct, Jesus refers to God the Father about 165 times. It's his favorite word for God. About a hundred of those occurrences are in the Gospel of John that we are studying together. 10 of them are right here, 10 of them. I just told you that in the entire Old Testament, God is referred to as Father 15 times. Here, Jesus refers to God as Father 10 times. You read it with me. No one comes to the, the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also, from now on, you do know him and have seen him. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the, the Father and it is enough for us. Jesus said to him, have I been with you so long? You still do not know me, Philip. Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me or else believe on account of the works themselves. What is Jesus talking about? Well, in the Old Testament, there's something called the 10 commandments. The first commandment is there is one God and the second commandment is you worship that God only. Some of your translations, the older translations will say that we should make no graven image of God. Because God the Father is immaterial, he's invisible, he's spiritual. He does not inhabit a human body. Jesus Christ, the son of God, enters into human history, takes upon himself a human body to reveal God and to save humanity. But God the Father is not in any regard physical. Not, not in any regard physical. Sometimes he'll use physical language to speak metaphorically, like he reached out his hand to us, but he doesn't actually have a physical hand, it's a metaphor. And so making no graven image means there is no way to symbolize, to typify God the Father. How many of you have seen 
Maybe a picture of God the Father where he's an old man talking, for example, to Adam and Eve in the garden. That would be a graven image because you're not allowed to reduce the creator to something in his creation. You're not allowed to take that which is invisible and make it physical, God. Let me say this as well. One of the the greatest misperceptions about God the Father is that he's a tired old man. Tired old man, because to you, when you think of father, you think of your dad in the recliner, laying back, snoring. God's not like that. Uh, There was a, there was an author some years ago, a Brit named G.K. Chesterton, and I'm paraphrasing, but he said, God is not old, he is young. We grow old because of sin. God never sinned, God does not grow old. God has all of the wisdom of an old man and all of the strength of a young man. God is not like you think he is. God does not grow weary. God does not get old. God is not subject to decay and decline or ultimately to death. So the the question that many had then was, well, if we are on earth and God is in heaven and God is invisible and God is immaterial and God is spiritual, how do we know what he's like? This is the question. Lord, talking to Jesus, show us the Father. Jesus said to him, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. Jesus is a mirror come to earth and he reflects the Father heart of God. What Jesus says is, when you hear me say something, I'm telling you what he told me to tell you. When you see me do something, I'm doing what he sent me to do for you. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Elsewhere he says, I and the Father are one. In Genesis, God made us male and female um, in the image and likeness of God. That language is made to mirror, that men and women are to reflect to creation the character of their creator, God the Father. We sin, Jesus comes, and he perfectly images, reflects, or mirrors. If you appreciate the love of Jesus, that's the love of the Father. If you appreciate the truth of Jesus, that's the truth of the Father. If you appreciate the forgiveness of Jesus, that's the forgiveness of the Father. And that's why it says in Colossians 1.15, he is the image of the invisible God. God the Father is invisible. Jesus Christ is God the Son come into human history to reveal, to mirror, to reflect the image of the invisible God. That word there in the original Greek text, which much of the New Testament was written, it's the word icon. You ever been to a church and they have a lot of icons? Our icon is named Jesus. If we wanna know what God is like, we don't look to a statue or a graven image. We look to the son of God who is the perfect reflection of the father heart of God. This is profound, this is significant. And furthermore, Jesus says something that I think is arguably one of the greatest oversights in all of Christian Bible teaching. I've had the honor of preaching almost every week for more than 20 years through a couple dozen books of the Bible. I believe this is the great omission 
in Christian instruction. The Trinity is one God, three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit. We're talking about it as a pastoral team this week. Can you think of, if you're a Christian, any decent books on God, the Holy Spirit? Most of us would say, yeah, I can think of some of those outside of the Bible. If I asked you, can you think of any decent books on Jesus? Well, just so you know, more books have been written about Jesus than anyone who's ever lived in the history of the world. So you can find a few books. God, the Father. For those of you who are Christians and you're a nerd like me and you like books, if I was to say, you know what, I'm a new Christian. I'd love to learn about God the Father outside of the Bible. Where could I go to learn about God the Father? What book has been written? I think I've got 5,000 books in my library. I've got tens of thousands on my laptop. I can't think of one. I have a few books on God the Father, but I'm not exactly sure I would recommend them wholeheartedly. We've forgotten the Father. We've forgotten the Father. God the Holy Spirit convicts us of sin, opens our understanding to love Jesus. Jesus says that his goal, no one comes to the, what's it say? Father. The goal of salvation is not just to get to Jesus, but to get to Jesus who will bring you to the Father. The portrait is like, uh, we're all just sort of foolish orphan kids and the father sends the son out looking for the kids and says, hey, come on, follow me. I'll take you home to dad. I'll get you home safely. That's exactly the language that Jesus is using. That's exactly the language that Jesus is using. It's like God is in heaven and we are on earth and Jesus is the bridge and he's the only bridge that we can cross over to get to the father's house. Um, this issue of the father is incredibly important because Jesus forgives you, but I don't think you can be emotionally healthy and healed up until you're in relationship with God as father. This is why there are some people who they have the Holy Spirit, they are forgiven and belong to Jesus. They're still emotionally unhealthy. They're still relationally unhealed, especially men, especially men. Um, I was, I'm, I'm kind of struggling to know how much to share. Um, when I was, uh, this is a big part of my journey in my heart for you. When I was 19, uh, became a Christian. I was at my first men's retreat. I was around 19 years of age. And they told us to go out and spend some time talking to God. And I didn't even really know what that meant, to be honest with you. And God spoke to me audibly. And he said to uh, Mary Grace, which I'm grateful that he told me that, and thank you for 26 years, best friend. Mary Grace, preach the Bible. I love doing that. So thank you all for letting me teach the Bible. Uh, train men, um, see you on Wednesday night. And uh, plant churches. So since I was 19, that's what I've been doing. And, uh, and then God said something that I don't think I've ever shared publicly, but I'll, I'll share it with you. I remember, I can't remember if I said it out loud or thought it in my mind. God, Why? And God spoke to me and he said, uh, Mark, I've called you out from among many to lead men. I'm 19 years old. I don't even know what that means. I'm not even yet a, a fully cooked man. Right? Like I I'm, I'm st still need to spend some time in the oven, you know? And so since that time, the majority of people that I have 
had the honor of teaching are men. The majority of people that listen to my sermons over more than 20 years are men. To this day, two thirds, three fourths of the people who follow me on social media are men. The primary group of people that listen to my teaching are men 25 to 34, young men. The men who are missing in the church. Most of the people I've seen saved and baptized by the thousands are men. And what I have learned and observed is that there are many men who are really excited about Jesus because they love it when the son is the hero and they're not really excited about the father because they're a son and they don't have a father. There's a father wound. That's what I'll call it. And don't call it daddy issues. To me, that's just demeaning, degrading, and demoralizing. Sometimes broken older men, oh, you got daddy issues. Well, you broke him, he's wounded. So don't just be flippant about it. Deal with it as reality. I believe that for many, if not most of us, our view of God is either a projection or a rejection of our earthly father. I'll give you an analogy. First time this dawned on me some years ago, I was a pretty big mixed martial arts fan. Um, and I was watching a fight and there was a sort of a, a lightweight fighter and he was fighting for the belt. His, his nickname was Little Evil, okay? Um, he's now met Jesus, so he's little formerly evil. So he's, we fixed that problem. But he, he fought and he won the, the, I think it was the lightweight belt or featherweight belt. He was a little guy. And he's very emotional at the end of the fight in the cage and they come and they put the microphone in his face. And they said, okay, how are you feeling? And he's very emotional. And he says, uh, see dad, I did amount to something. I remember watching that on TV, just thinking, every fight, this guy put his dad's face on his opponent's body and went to war. In his biography, after he became a Christian, he tells the story that when he was a little boy, I think he might've been seven, his dad put a gun in his mouth and said, I would shoot you, but I don't think you're worth the price of the bullet. The most dominant person in your life is your dad. Other than the Lord, it's your dad. And some of you would say, I never met my dad. I didn't know my dad. My dad had nothing to do with me. The empty chair at the dining room table was the most dominant factor in your life. Your dad doesn't need to be present to be dominant. So my experience is that sometimes people really struggle with God as father because they have a wound from their earthly father. And the result is your wound from your earthly father causes your view of your heavenly father to either be a projection or a rejection of God. Now, <clears throat> Let me ask this rhetorical question. Is Jesus healthy? Yeah. Is Jesus the picture of a healthy man? Yes. How does he see himself as a son in relationship with the father? That's healthy. I'm gonna ask you <clears throat> what kind of dad you had. I think there's basically six kinds. Did you have the tragic dad? 
He wasn't there, but it's not because he didn't love you. It's because he got cancer and died. He got in a car wreck and died. He went off to military service and died. Something tragic happened. He wasn't there for you, but it's not because he didn't wanna be there for you. Something tragic happened. How many of you had a terrible dad? He abused you. He abandoned you. He, he left when you were literally walked out on you and your mom. Um, one of my friends, his dad left when he was a little boy. He, today, he doesn't know what country his dad lives in. He's married to a wonderful gal. They've got the cutest kids and his dad doesn't know that he's married or a father. He's never met his grandsons, never met his daughter-in-law and has never seen his son as an adult male. Terrible father. Complete abandonment. How many of you, your father was tough? You had the tough dad. These are often the jock and or military dads. They're tough. Rules, no relationship. Punishment, reward, no affection or encouragement. Perform, perform, perform. And it gets you into this performance cycle where you're always trying to prove yourself and you work for your identity, not from your identity. So we saw it earlier in John's gospel, before Jesus had preached a sermon, raised a dead person or performed a miracle, God the Father said, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. Jesus worked from his relationship with the Father, not for his relationship with the Father. He worked from the Father's approval, so he had nothing to prove. Some of you had a tough dad. He was more of a drill sergeant or an angry coach. Some of you had, and, and that, those men become domineering and overbearing. Some of you, or maybe this was you, your dad was tender. He wasn't tough, he was tender. He was nice, he was sweet, he was kind, he was heartfelt, he was emotional, but he was weak. Couldn't hold a job, didn't know how to make ends meet, had a lot of childish, immature and foolish behaviors and ways. Maybe everybody enjoyed him, but nobody respected him. And with a tender dad, he doesn't like conflict, doesn't like responsibility. He's a people pleaser, doesn't like anyone who doesn't like him. If you were a woman raised by a dad like that, he let you enter into harm's way. You ended up being attracted to strong, aggressive males because you'd not seen one and you didn't realize that some of them are very, very dangerous. And your dad was too tender to get invested, involved and protect you. He was not a protector, defender, provider. How many of you your father was tolerable. He wasn't a great guy, but he wasn't a bad guy. He wasn't awful, he wasn't awesome. He had some good days and some bad days and you're more blessed than most. And how many of you, you had a terrific dad? He loved you, served you, cared for you. He helped you grow up, poured into you, was affectionate, relational, present, healthy. If you had a dad like that, you had a miracle. Most of our social problems are the result of failed fathers. If 
For the first time in our nation's history, the majority of children born to women 30 and under are born out of wedlock. Tonight in our nation, the majority of children go to bed without a father, not even a bad dad, no dad. Jesus comes and says that God's our father. If you've got a father wound and you hear that, you can make your view of God either a projection or a rejection of God. A projection. God was mean. I read the Bible. God is mean. My dad was not safe. He was mean. God must be unsafe and mean. I'll run from him, not to him. Or a rejection. My dad was angry, mean, overbearing. I'm sure God doesn't judge anybody. There is no hell. He's fine with everything. I'll prove it to you. Atheism is the belief that there is no God. Atheism is an orphaned heart saying, I have no father. I come from no one. I report to no one. I'm accountable to no one. I belong to no one. I am my own independent autonomous person. Atheism is, I have no father. Agnosticism teaches you may have, there may be a God out there somewhere but we don't know him, he doesn't know us, he's not trying to find us, we're not trying to find him, we've just moved on with our lives. This is like the dad that abandoned you or was never there for you. Agnosticism is, I don't know if I have a father, I don't care if I have a father, I don't wanna know my father, and my father doesn't wanna know me. There's no relationship. That's agnosticism. Deism is the view that God lives far away and he's not involved in our lives. For some people, this is like the dad who left when they were little. I have a dad, but he left, he moved far away and he's not involved in my life. I am on my own. He has left me alone. That's deism. Deism is the heart of a child who feels like God is a father who has abandoned them. Within Christian theology, there is a perpetual war between the left and the right over the view of God. So I would lean more in this direction. What I'll call reform theology. There is a God He's in charge, but he's not very nice. For a lot of people, that's the kind of dad they had. My dad was around, he was in charge, but he wasn't very safe and he wasn't very nice. Therefore, that theology makes sense to me because the view of God makes sense to the view of the father that I had. Now, on the other side, there's a theology called Arminianism. And that is basically that God is a permissive parent. He lets you make all your decisions. You do whatever you want. You decide. He doesn't really involve himself or make decisions for you. You're kind of on your own. And for some people, that was their dad. Their dad was, you make your own decisions. You do what you want. Uh, Who am I to tell you what to do? You're an independent person. We call that Arminianism. And then there's something called progressive or liberal Christianity where God is a permissive father. Whatever you wanna do, do it. Whatever you wanna be, be it. Who am I to judge? This is the view of God, more like a dad who buys your weed, buys your beer and smokes and drinks it with you. 
Oh, you wanna have sex? Well, have sex. You wanna do that? Do that. You wanna join that? Do whatever you want. Look, I just, I don't judge. I do whatever I want. You do whatever you want. I don't judge you. You don't judge me. There are no laws and rules. I'm just the permissive parent. That's the progressive and or liberal view of God. Nobody goes to hell. God's not angry. Sin's not a problem. There are no rules. There are no laws. There will be no consequences. There is no discipline. Dad's just a big hippie. How do you know if you've got a father wound? Number one, great fear of marriage and parenting. There is a whole generation that is waiting until their 30s to get married or have children. And sometimes it's not just for economic reasons, it's for emotional reasons. They're scared. My parents' relationship blew up. It was a painful family drama. I would like to get married and have kids, but I am scared that I will pass on this painful legacy to my own children. Therefore, I am scared to get married and have children. Um, that's why the average man is over 30 when he gets married. That's why a lot of guys struggle with commitment and covenant. Um, because dad is supposed to be in some regards a backstop. Okay, I was a catcher short enough, I was already halfway there. So like, you be the catcher, okay. So a guy's pitching, my job is to block the ball. So every once in a while I'd get down, tuck the chin, take one for the team, block the ball. What happens if the ball gets by me? What is there? There's a backstop. Meaning it's not gonna roll forever, it's gonna stop. Especially, this is a message for men and women, but men first, especially young men. Your dad is supposed to be a backstop. What if I get married and we get in a tough place? Dad's there. What if we have kids and we're struggling with that? Dad's there. What if I start a company, but financially we had a rough patch? Dad's there. What about emotionally if I get sick or my wife gets sick or my kid gets sick emotionally, spiritually? Dad's there. Dad's supposed to be a backstop supposed to be there to help. And what that does, it gives you more confidence so that if something goes wrong, it's not going to be catastrophic that you're not all by yourself. Number two, how do you know if you've got a father wound? Immaturity. Fathers grow us up. There's a whole generation that's been over-mothered, under-fathered. As a result, we've created what I call boys who can shave. It's an adolescent season. It used to be you were a boy and then you became a man. And now we created another life stage called adolescence. And that means you can have some of the income and freedoms of a man, but you have the maturity and responsibility of a little boy. This is a whole generation. This is a generational crisis. And nobody knows, when do you become an adult? Is it when you turn 18 and you can vote or join the military? Is it 21 when you can drink? Is it when you graduate? Is it when you get a degree? Is it when you get married, when you have a kid? And some people now, they have extended their adolescence into their 30s and 40s and 50s. And some of you have a dad who's a child. He's a child. He's acting like he's in high school on spring break. What happens when you have a father is he helps you mature. Because sometimes mom can baby a child, especially a son. Oh, 
you know, he's trying his best. Don't push him too hard. I, I cut the crust off the peanut butter and jelly sandwich and I, I prayed for him and I put on the worship station. Dad's like, he's 32. He's 32. He's 32. He does not need a onesie. He needs a job. He needs a job, not a onesie, right? I'm done with a sippy cup. You're putting vodka in the sippy cup. It's, it's time for a transition, right? That's funny, unless you're that guy. Some of the guys are like, man, he's really picking on me. <laughs> How do you know you got a father wound? Number three, you're just rebellious against all authority, especially male authority just rebellious again. Because you know what? A father has authority. Father says, no. Kids sometimes need to say, okay. Now, when you have an earthly father that doesn't have any authority or you rebel against his authority because he's not loving and healthy, that can cause you to have a relationship with God where you're like, you know what? Authority is bad. Rules are bad. Being told no is bad. God, I'm rebellious by nature because of the brokenness from my father. When you know that God is a father, he loves you and he cares for you and he has good intended for you. And when he tells you something, it's for your life to flourish. Then you submit to authority and you welcome godly authority. We have a whole culture that is absolutely rebellious because of a father wound. Number four, if you have a father wound, you become very self-centered. When there is a healthy mother and father at the center of the home, God is first priority, marriage is second priority, children are third priority. If you grew up in a home where there wasn't healthy marriage and maybe they didn't know God, you became the center of the home. And mama just orbited around you and you became very selfish. That's why sometimes, I try not to be mean, but you can be a baby. Who's gonna look after me? Who's gonna take care of me? Where's my mama? No, you're supposed to now become a daddy and you're supposed to love and serve others. Um, That's why sometimes a dad, when you've got a dad in the home, you pretty quickly realize that you're not the center. You notice that? Like right now, I, I, uh, I got five kids that I love with all my heart, but if there's a fire at our house tonight and I can only get one person out, it's a good day for grace. Okay. <laughs> so, right. probably shouldn't have said it like that, but you know, you know. But the kids know the marriage is the priority. Are they a priority? Yes. But they're not the center of the universe. God is, and then the marriage, and then the kids. What happens when you're in the center, you become very selfish because you're served. What a dad is supposed to do is help you transition from child to adult and start serving others and not just being served. To not be selfish, but to be a servant. How do you know you got a father wound? Number five, dead mentors. There is a whole generation. This is not a critique. This is an observation. I hope it comes out of love. Time Magazine some years ago, I've had a weird life. 
Time Magazine had a cover, I think it was a cover story on ideas changing the world, and I was listed in the article. That's how weird my life is. And they called it, uh, I don't know, New Calvinism or something. And it was, there's this whole generation of young pastoral leaders that are enamored with dead mentors. Father wound. I want a father so bad. I pick Calvin. I want a father so bad. I pick Luther. I want a father so bad. I pick Spurgeon. Every time I see a guy with a shirt that says, Calvin is my homeboy. Spurgeon is my homeboy. Luther is my homeboy. I think, yeah, that's a boy with a father wound. And that boy has a father wound from his home. He doesn't need a homeboy, he needs the father. And the reason that guys pick dead mentors is because a dead mentor can't actually father you. Hey, knock it off, that's wrong. You're out of line. That's why some guys will choose their spiritual fathers or just people who podcast. Because that guy's never gonna look you in the eye and say, that was wrong. That needs to stop, you need to change. We pick dead or distant mentors because we really lack fathers. That's why some of you love old theology because you have a father wound. I'm a nerd, I like reading dead guys. I learn from them, I appreciate biography, all of that. But you need living mentors not dead or distant mentors to mature. How do you know you've got a father wound? Number six, God as mother. Do you know that there are some translations that'll actually take this whole section and take out all the words, father, 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 why? Father wound. Just the word father is offensive. Oh, it makes me feel very unsafe, why? Well because my dad hurt me. Well then let the father heal you. He's a father to the fatherless. Let's heal that. We have no right to look at God and say, I will name you because the father always names the child. The child never names the parent. God tells us his name is father. And we say, no, mother. No, the child does not name the parent. The parent names the child. Now, God is not engendered. He does not have a physical, anatomical male, female. But John Calvin says, when God speaks to us, he speaks to us in baby talk. It's like talking to a a little kid, like, okay, let me explain this to you. The language of father and son, that's intentional. Some people who would say, no, God is mother. That's just evidence to me of a father wound. How about this one? Uh, Number seven, monogenerational churches. My generation was a generation with a father wound, angry, we're gonna go plant our own churches and older people shouldn't come. Why? Because older people hurt us. And so we're gonna create our own family that has no parents or grandparents. It's just all brothers and sisters. Oh, that's like the home you grew up in. And it was dysfunctional. How many of you are older and you were part of that generation that was kind of hippie. And the statement was, don't trust anyone over 30. And he became 31, you're like, rut row. I don't, I can't trust myself. You're like, okay, don't trust anyone over 31, right? You keep, 
Part of the vision for the Trinity Church is a multi-generational church. We want every age and life stage. You older people, you're welcome here. You younger people, you're welcome here. If you older people don't feel comfortable because they're younger people, you really need to be here. And if you younger people see older people and it makes you have a nervous eye twitch, you should get to know them and get that healed up. That generations need one another that a family and a church family are only healthy if multiple generations are involved. Millennials are interesting. They're different than my generation. Millennials, they will tend to list who is their best friend, their parent. Millennials that grew up even in broken homes, they wanna see healthy marriages, families, and relationships. They wanna get to know older people. It gives the church of Jesus Christ this amazing opportunity to say, if the family was not healthy, maybe the family of God can be healthy and the family of God can help heal those who have wounds from an unhealthy family. How about this one? An unhealthy son-centered theology. Let me be careful with this. Um, Do I love Jesus? Both of you said yes, I was hoping for more, but that is the correct answer, okay? Do I believe in Jesus? Yeah. Um, I've got a ministry that says it's all about Jesus, okay? I believe that the key to understanding the whole Bible is Jesus. But what happens with some people, they're like, I love Jesus, I'm excited about Jesus, thank you, Jesus, I worship Jesus, I belong to Jesus, I can't wait to be forever with Jesus. And Jesus says, here's what I'm trying to do, I'm trying to get you to the Father. I don't wanna hear about the father. Tell me more about the son because I love it where the son is the hero because I'm a son. I struggle with the father because I have a father one. The Holy Spirit reveals to us Jesus and our sin and our need for Jesus as our savior. Jesus forgives our sin and he brings us to the father for healing. I believe that there are a lot of people that have the Holy Spirit and their sins forgiven. They're still emotionally unhealthy. They're still relationally unhealthy and they're broken especially men. This is the majority of my counseling and ministry for more than 20 years. What do you think about Jesus? I love Jesus. I believe in Jesus. I'm so great. What do you think about God the Father? I don't know. I don't really think about it. Okay. Jesus' ministry is to get you to the Father so that you're not just forgiven, but you're healthy and you're relational. You're cared for. You have an identity. You don't have an orphan's heart. You have the heart as a child of God. How does this happen? Well, it's like Jesus talking a lot about God the Father and talking a lot to God the Father. In fact, they came to Jesus and they said, teach us how to pray. And he says, well, when you pray, pray like this, our Father. You're gonna have to talk to the Father about this. You're gonna have to spend time with the Father about this. You're gonna have to work this out with the Father. I can't lead you to the Father, the Lord Jesus can, amen? And with the Father, there is love and with the Father, there is forgiveness and with the Father, there is hope, help and healing. Jesus forgives sin and the Father heals hurts, especially the Father one. No one, comes to the Father, except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. 
from now on, you do know him and you have seen him. Philip said, Lord, show us the Father and it is enough for us. Jesus said to him, I've been with you so long and you still do not know me, Philip. Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me, I am in the Father and the Father is in me. God the Father loves you. His heart is a Father's heart toward you. He wants to unburden you. Jesus says at the very beginning, do not let your hearts be troubled. And the answer is, come to the Father. If you live in or are visiting the Greater Phoenix Valley, please join us at the Trinity Church in Scottsdale, Arizona. You can also watch Pastor Mark live on Sundays, YouTube, Facebook, the app, or at markdriscoll.org. And as Pastor Mark always says, it's all about Jesus.